you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, we're just continuing our study in Ephesians. Really excited. We're uh, actually kind of at the end of this, it's like this interesting transition point. Uh, the way that Paul wrote his prayer, uh, which we've been walking through, which begins in Ephesians 1, verse 15, uh, he gets the prayer itself, he kind of gives an introduction in verse 15 and 16, which we've looked at. He gets into the heart of the prayer in verse 17 and prays that, uh, that God will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Uh, again, that, I hold, that whole idea is the word revelation is an unveiling, it's a pulling back of the curtain. Uh, wisdom there is the deep things of God, or it's his perspective, it's his mind. So Paul then is praying that there would just be this unveiling, this pulling back of the curtain of the deep things of God in your life, so that it would drive you to a greater understanding, intimacy, oneness with him, this idea of the knowledge of him. And I keep saying this over and over again, but I don't know about you, but I am just desperate for this unveiling, this pulling back of the curtain of the deep things of God in my life for, so that I can gain his heart and his mind and his perspective in my situation for the full purpose of this knowledge of him thing, which again goes back to this idea of intimacy and oneness. Now, as he comes into verse 18, uh, he, he's praying that, that the eyes of your understanding, that you would gain this insight, uh, or the eyes of your heart, rather, uh, would be enlightened. So here's God. He's taking your hard heart uh, your heart that's full of sin and depravity and corruption and callous and just this twistedness, and he's literally brought light into your heart, into your life, and brought you to a place where now you can see clearly. And he gets into the, the, the aspect of this, and he says, let me give you three things that I'm desperately praying that God would give you the insight, this knowledge, this aha in. And we've been walking through those last couple of times. Uh, what's interesting is, again, the first one's in verse 18. Uh, the middle of verse 18, where it says uh, that you may know the hope of his calling. And again, the idea, <clears throat> the idea there is not that I, I hope that I have a calling. It's that you have a calling, which there, therefore produces hope in your life. And what is the calling that's on your life? Uh, yeah, God may call you into a profession. Yeah, there may be uh, a calling in that sense. But the calling here is a calling of intimacy. It's a calling of relationship. And the calling itself is Jesus. And what he's calling you into is a person. This, hey, would you just get all wrapped up in the person that, that he has named his name upon you, that, that he's invited you to the banquet, as we've, as we've talked about. The second idea, which we looked at last time, is this whole idea that, uh, that you would understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance among the saints. And we talked about two aspects of the fact that there's this idea of inheritance, and it's the fact that my inheritance, according as, we were, as we've looked in the past at like verse 11 and 13 and 14, that my inheritance as a Christian is God himself. That, that Jesus becomes my inheritance. And I don't have to wait for the eternals to begin to experience my inheritance. I get to experience the reality of my inheritance now. Now, I don't get the full inheritance. We understand that from uh, verses 13 and 14. We get a down payment of our inheritance. And then the flip side of that is, not only is it our inheritance is, is God, but God has an inheritance and what is, what is his inheritance? It's us. And so again, it goes back to this idea of relationship and oneness. And of course, it's, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise to you that the whole focus of what Paul's been saying through the whole book of Ephesians is, hey, this is all about Jesus. Hey, this is all about him. 
Uh, this is from him, through him, to him. Hey, would you just get wrapped up in intimacy and oneness and just have this overwhelming passion in your life for Jesus? That that is the reality of what Paul's praying. So as we get into the third aspect then, which is verse 19, it's interesting that verse 19, in my mind, again, if you look at the scholars, they, they kind of do some different stuff with verse 19. Verse 19, in my mind, is kind of the conclusion of the prayer, but it's also the beginning of a brand new section talking about the overwhelming power of God. And I don't know how to describe this well except to say it almost appears, at least in the passage, that Paul says, all right, I have this overwhelming prayer that I want to pray. And he gets into the heart of the prayer. And as he begins to talk about the power of God, which we're going to look at in just one second, as he gets into the power, it's like he he is so overwhelmed by the reality of the power of God. It's like he goes, oh, I just need to teach on this. And he just, he almost deviates from the prayer and just starts teaching. So is it a continuation, verses like 20 down through verse 23? Is it a continuation of the prayer? And some scholars say, well, yeah, that's part of the prayer. And some scholars say, well, no, it seems like a whole new teaching section. So then what do you do with verse 19? Because verse 19 is the third aspect of the prayer that Paul's praying, but it's also the launch pad of what he's talking about in terms of the whole power of God thing. So again, whatever you want to do with that, I guess you can do whatever you want with that. Uh, I just find it fascinating that just in the flow of it, uh, he doesn't end with a period at the end of verse 19. He just keeps on trucking, and yet it's like he gets into teaching, not, not the prayer thing, if that makes any sense. So what I just want to do, just for the sake of our context, is uh, I want to read verse 17 down to verse 19, just so it's fresh in our minds, and I want to look specifically at verse 19 this morning. So Paul, again, he's in the middle of the prayer, and he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance among the saints. And verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. Now let me read verse 19 again. Paul says he, he wants you to know the surpassing greatness of his power, God's power, toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. When you kind of stand back and look at the passage as a whole, <clears throat> you'll notice that the whole emphasis here in the passage has, not, has nothing to do with you, has everything to do with God and his overwhelming power. And in fact, God is working his mighty power in us who believe. That God, who is full of power, is literally u- utilizing his power in your life and your circumstances for his purpose and his, his plan and his, his glory. I, I love what uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about uh, the power of God. And I'll just quote it because it's, he says it so well. But Lloyd-Jones says, If you take all the dictionaries of the world, if you exhaust all the vocabularies, and when you've added them all together, you will still have not begun to describe the greatness of God's power. It's a great, it's a great quote. Uh, Paul, in the passage, it's interesting that uh, he starts with the idea of the surpassing greatness. Or at least that's what my translation says, the surpassing greatness. Uh, that, that, those two words in the Greek, the surpassing greatness, uh, one of them has, it's, a, it's an intensifier, it's like mega, this is like his mega power kind of an idea. And it's actually a very rare word in the Greek. Uh, the other word is where we get the English word hyperbole in, or, or from. Uh, hyperbole is those things where it's like, an, it's a complete exaggeration. It is, it is so over the top it's just unbelievable kind of a thing. 
Now, the way it's being used here in the Greek, again, it's interesting. It's a very rare Greek word. It only shows up a couple of times. But the way it's being used uh, is the idea, and even the Greek picture is that of like a, an, uh, an Olymp- Olympic event. Uh, but let me give you it in my context. Uh, I enjoy a good game of disc golf. And so imagine I, uh, I go out with one of my friends, and, and uh, I'm all excited. I got my little discs, and I go out to the first hole, and I, I'm looking at the basket. I'm like, okay, here we go. And I take my disc, and I take my disc, and I huck it. And it's just flying. And I'm like, yes, I did good. Whoo, praise the Lord. I'm going to be able to get this in about 10 shots. Right? And uh, my buddy stands up. He takes his disc. And with overwhelming power, he just whoosh. And it just whoa. And it just it flies so much further, and it lands. And I'm like, what on earth? And his went exceedingly beyond mine. That's this word. Now, it's actually a sad illustration even for the word. The word actually itself is the idea of like throwing a javelin, and you throw a javelin, it goes 100 feet, you're excited. Someone else stands up, throws a javelin, throws it 10 miles, and his went exceedingly beyond yours. In other words, it's hyperbole. It's just exaggerated. It's just, are you kidding me? And Paul is using those words trying to describe the power of God. And yet what's interesting in this passage, in the context, is it's not an exaggeration. This is not like a ha-ha joke where, I threw it 10 feet, he threw it 100 miles, right? This is, you can't begin to describe the overwhelming power of God. And as Lloyd-Jones says, even if you used all the languages of the world, it would still pale in comparison to describing the greatness of God's power. Now, over the years, I've used a really cheesy illustration, uh, which I'll give. And again, it's, most preachers have cheesy illustrations. This one definitely is cheesy. And uh, I was trying to figure out, okay, how do you describe this reality of something indescribable and again the best best i had was a, a, a droplet of water and of course it, this is this is made up made up obviously but uh, imagine there's this spacecraft that shows up and this alien comes out i'm making this up but this alien comes out and he sees a droplet of water on, on a tree branch and of course he's never seen water he's never engaged with anything on planet earth he's never seen you know life and as we know it and he's looking at this droplet of water and he goes what is that and i say oh that's water well, what is water? Oh, well, how do you describe water to someone who has never understood water or engaged with water before? It's like, well, my, my body is made up of a whole bunch of that stuff. I, I drink it. In fact, if you put a whole bunch of those together, you can jump into it like a swimming pool. In fact, we have these things called oceans that are so insurmountable that there's billions and trillions and gazillions of these little things. And in fact, there are things that live in the water. And of course, you can imagine a little alien going, you're telling me things live in, in this thing. Well, no, not that one, but if you put a whole bunch of them together, you know, you have things like fish and squid and jellyfish and sharks and whales. And in fact, we have these boats that weigh hundreds of thousands of tons that float in these things. You freeze it, it's called ice. You heat it up, it's called steam. I mean, how do you begin to describe water to someone who has never understood water before? So if you take that concept and bring in this idea of God, how, we, how do you begin to describe the vastness of the ocean if all you've ever seen, seen is a single droplet of water? In other words, if, if, if someone's only ever engaged and they've only ever seen a droplet of water, how, how would they begin to wrap their mind around the immensity of the ocean? How would your mind grapple with the idea of a jellyfish or a well or ice or, or any of the realities of the ocean by a single droplet of water? It would be near impossible to get your mind wrapped around it. And I think in a similar sense, as we're trying to describe the power of God, 
you begin to recognize that the power of God is so indescribable, the power of God is so immense and so over the top that trying to describe the power of God, now we have a big drop of water, I, I get that, and we have all of history, and we've seen what God's done, we have his word, and just his revelation to us, right, right, we have his nature, we have, I mean, we have, uh, we can look at nature itself and just see the overwhelming realities of his power, but if, if we combine all of that, I still think it's but a single droplet of water compared to the vastness of who he is. So if that is true, and I, I think it is, how, how, how do you begin to understand the power of God? I, I, I think it's actually impossible. Just like if all you've ever seen is a single droplet of water, how would you begin to understand the vastness of the oceans? C.S. Lewis once gave an illustration. He said, if, <clears throat> if you took a piece of paper and you extended it infinitely in every direction, so it was you know, a million miles up and a million miles down and a million miles every direction, and then you took the sharpest pencil possible and you put it down on that piece of paper. He says, when the, when the pencil hit the paper, that would be the start of all time. Let, you know, let there be light kind of stuff. He says, now if you drew a one-inch line on that infinite piece of paper and you lifted that pencil off, that would be the end of time. So obviously we're somewhere in the middle of all that. He says, if that one-inch line on paper is all of human history, he says that infinite piece of paper is the reality of who God is. I mean, how do you wrap your mind around that kind of stuff? That God is so immense. So here, here and maybe here's even a better question. If the power of God is indescribable, it's in, even, even so much that trying to describe the vastness of the ocean to someone who's only ever seen a droplet of water is actually easier than trying to describe the vastness of the power of God. If that is true, how much more, how much greater is the God behind the power? In other words, if the power of God is indescribable, how much more God himself? You realize that we will never get to the end of who he is. In, in eternity, in 10 billion gazillion years from now, we're still going to be on the tippity-top of the shaved ice on the tippity top of the iceberg of all there is of who God is. Why? Because he's just, he's indescribable. He's just so immense. He's just, the, the, the more you learn about him, the more you begin to understand you don't know anything because there's so much more to learn about him. And truly trying to describe the power of God is like trying to describe the vastness of the ocean by a single droplet of water. In fact, I think trying to describe the oceans is easier. And Paul, in our passage here, is doing the best he can to describe this overwhelming power of God. And again, he describes the power of God by using this idea of surpassing greatness. That his power is just over and above. It is just, it's mega. It's just, I mean, you, you, you try to describe it and it just, it goes far beyond description is the idea. Now, what's really neat about the passage is that in verse 19, it's like Paul in his attempt to describe the overwhelming power of God does his absolute best, and he uses four different Greek words in our passage for the word power. It's like Paul saying, how do, I, how do I begin to wrap my mind around the power of God? How do I begin to describe the realities of what you are to know about his power? He goes, I, I got an idea. I'm going to use two rare Greek words to talk about the fact that it's mega, it's immense, it's just, it's over and above in, this, in that idea. He says, but not only that, let me, let me give you four different Greek words for the word power to describe the overwhelming power of God, which I just think is really neat. So I just want to walk through them really quickly with you because I think it helps us gain a, 
and insight. Again, we'll never fully understand the overwhelming power of our God. But what Paul is praying for is that you would have an insight, that you begin to see it, that you begin to recognize that God's power is overwhelming in your life. So let me read verse 19 again. I'll just highlight them since a couple of them are kind of hard to see. Again, in verse uh, 19, Paul writes that he's praying that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power, obviously that's one of them, toward us who believe, according to the working, that's another one, of his mighty, that's another one, power, that's another one. So those are the four words. At least in my translation, it's power, mighty, power, working. Uh, Let me walk through those four Greek words with you. Again, they each paint a slightly different picture. Uh, One of them is the uh, Greek word kratos. And kratos has this idea of uh, supremacy, has this idea of dominion, has this idea of sovereignty or force or authority or lordship. Uh, It's the idea that God has ultimate power. Uh, A king of a kingdom has kratos. That uh, here's a king, he sits up on a throne, and no one comes up to the king and says, King, I'm forcing you to do this. See, they they cannot do that. Why? Because the king has the authority. The king has the power. He is the sovereign over his kingdom. You realize that God has that kind of power, that we cannot go up to God and say, God, uh, I'm going to bend your arm behind your back. I'm going to force you. I'm going to manipulate you. I'm fasting, so therefore you have to obey me. See, there's nothing that we can do to twist God's arm behind his back to make him do what we want him to do. Why? Because he's the one in the position of power. He's in the one of lordship and force and supremacy and dominion and all that kind of stuff. That he is the king of the universe. Now, because I've said that, let me clarify. We've said this before in a previous study. But just because he oversees everything does not mean he's causing everything. God does not cause sin. Now, he may allow it to take place, but that doesn't mean he's the one causing it, and there's a distinct difference. In other words, oh, why did God allow the, or why did God cause that tsunami to hit and kill all these people? He, he may not have caused it. Now, did he allow it to happen? Sure he did. It comes under his authority. But it's a distinct difference of him allowing something and him manipulating or causing it to take place. Uh, in other words, if I can maybe say it this way, uh, uh, here's my life, and, and, I, and I, I go out, and I, I kick the dog. Did God force me to do that? Is he manipulating my circumstances, and is he controlling in that sense? No. He's looking at me saying, Nathan, don't kick the dog. You can kick the cat. Don't kick the dog. Sorry, maybe a bad joke, but still true. Uh, you know, don't, don't kick the dog. So did he cause me? No, that was my own selfishness, my own pride, and my own anger. But he allowed it. Now he's going to bring correction in my life, right? Just, just, just like the fact that he doesn't cause sin. He, he's not sitting there uh, looking at some murderer going, ooh, kill him, kill him, kill him, right? He, hey, it's breaking his heart. He does not look at the orphan crisis and go, oh, this is just so exciting. See, that stuff breaks his heart. He's, he's a father to the destitute and the orphan and the widow. But just because he's allowing it doesn't mean that he's, he's supporting or causing it. I think that's really important. And yet, because he's over it, he still has a position. Is this making any sense? So God has power. Well, what kind of power does he have? He has the authority. He has the supremacy. He's the sovereign of the kingdom. He's, he oversees all things. And he's, he's according to Romans 8.28, he's leveraging all things, good and bad, for the purpose of his plan. And I don't know about you, but he's used some things that I've done in such stupid ways. And some of my own hiccups and my own failures and my own sin... But he's using that 
to bring about a greater life in me. That doesn't mean he's wanting me to keep on sinning. No, says Paul. But yet he's using that to bring about a work. Uh, he's using the fact that I kicked the dog somehow for his plan. And all you dog lovers, I, I have not kicked a dog today. So we're okay. <laughs> anyway, so again, the first word for power is this idea of he's in control. In other words, he, he has all ultimate authority, his ultimate power. In fact, Jesus even says it countless times in the, in the scriptures that uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And again, it doesn't mean he's causing everything, but he is overseeing and he's allowing uh, all things, which means we can trust him. In other words, nothing's going to go on in our life that's taken him by surprise. It's not like, you know, we have this situation and he goes, oh, I didn't, oh, I didn't, um, I'm sorry. I, I think you're stuck. You're left on your own. <laughs> Good luck. We'll check in next month on you. You know, it's, it's, he, he never does that. Why? He's, he's fully participating. He's fully engaged. That he knows your problems. He knows your circumstances. He, he knows the good things. He knows the bad things. Why? He's, he's sovereign. He's supreme. He, he has all the authority and all the dominion and, and all the lordship. I just think that's, I think that's amazing. So I can, because of that, I can put my trust in him. I can, I can stand firmly in confidence on the fact that, hey, there's this problem in my life, but hey, he's going to leverage this for my good. I've been listening to a, a biography about a, a Chinese pastor who was in prison and just was beaten and beaten and tortured in just incredibly horrible ways. And he just, the whole time, he's just delighting, just delighting in it. And he's just happy and he's singing. And you're like, dude, you have a problem. He's like, no, I know my God. He's allowed me to be here. And in fact, I, I, I'm almost at the end of the book. And he, uh, he went to a foreign country to pick up his wife and his, his kids. And uh, they thought he was a spy. And they, they put him in jail in the other country for for several months. And he's just like, God, I, I, I got out of all the craziness. And, and why did you let me back? And this is even a worse prison than the stuff in China. He's like, why did you let me, let me be in here? And after a couple of days, he goes, you know what? I've, I've begun to recognize that I couldn't have forced myself into the prison system. So God has allowed me to be a missionary here. What is it? That's God being sovereign. And it's not that he looked at the bad guys and said, oh, put him in jail. But he's leveraging that situation for God's purpose and his plan. And he was able to bring life and encouragement to all these prisoners who would have otherwise never had any hope because no Christian pastors have ever gone in there. I mean, I just, that's, that's crazy to me. Why? Because God is sovereign. So, hey, I can trust him in my circumstances and my situation because of his overwhelming power. Now, it doesn't mean it makes sense, but I can trust him. And I can trust that he is, he's going to be leveraging this for his purpose and his plan. So, Lord, hey, hey, do this according to your will. And as this pastor keeps saying, he goes, I will not be in prison one moment longer than God's will necessitates. And I will not get out one minute sooner than his will necessitates. So I can relax and trust him. Why? Because he has kratos. He has dominion and sovereignty and authority and power. I just think that's beautiful. Uh, another word for the word power in our passage is the uh, Greek word iskis. Uh, iskis has this idea of ability or strength or resource. Uh, maybe the best way to understand iskis is this idea of a, a capacity or the ability to perform something. Uh, I'll use Eric since uh, people listening to, listen to this probably know Eric more than anybody else. But uh, I don't know if you recognize this, but Eric, Eric can, can lift a lot of weight. Uh, we've done a lot of, you know, in the core workout stuff over the, over the years and, and I don't know if you ever noticed this, but, but 
Eric has bigger muscles than what, what actually shows in the physical. And, uh, and uh, I don't know if you know this, Eric actually has the ability to bench press 800 pounds. Okay, I'm obviously making this up, but just go with the illustration. Uh, Eric has the ability to bench press 800 pounds. Now, he's not bench pressing 800 pounds, but he has the oomph, he has the uh, to, to do so. That's this idea of iskis. And in the context of the passage, what Paul is saying is, do you recognize that God has overwhelming, unlimited oomph? He has the uh, iskis kind of stuff that he has the ability to perform. Now, that doesn't mean he's doing anything at the moment, but he has the ability. Isn't it great that God is a God of impossibilities? That he has the ability. What is not able or what, it, what is not functional or what is not possible in the natural realm, it is possible with God. Why? Because he has the iskis. He has the ability. He has the resource to do so. Now, the third word for the word, uh, for, for one of the words for power in our passage is the word dunamis. Now, dunamis is the expression or the working out of the iskis. So hang, hang to this. Iskis is the whoop, the, the muscles, the ability. So in our case, Eric has the iskis to bench press 800 pounds. Now, he's not doing that. Now, the moment that Eric goes to the bench press and gets under the weight and just starts going, whoa, 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 right? Up and down, up and down, up and down, right? He is dunamising the weight. He's taking the iskis, applying it into real life, and it's, being, it's a demonstration of the ability that he has. And Paul says, God has dunamis. That is where we get the word uh, dynamite. Uh, it's this idea, it's, the, it's an expression of power. It's the, the visible, it's what you get to see. It's, it's this uh, strength or might or force. In fact, one of the, one of the great passages of that word, it shows up nearly 500 times in the, New Test- or in the Bible, uh, this idea of dunamis. But the one that you probably know well is the Acts 1-8 passage. That, hey, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, and then you shall receive dunamis when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you, you shall be a witness to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all, and all, and all the world. That there's this idea that, hey, what, what is the Holy Spirit going to do in your life? <clears throat> there's going to be a demonstration of his overwhelming power in your life. And Paul, here in our passage, says not only does God have the authority and the, and the dominion and the sovereignty, that kratos idea, but he has this iskis, this, this, this ability to, to perform, that he has this unlimited resource to handle anything and everything. Now, when God takes that resource and brings that about in, in, the, in the world, it's that dunamis expression of the iskis. It's that, it's that revelation of the kind of stuff, which is just really neat. And what is God wanting to do in your world? Have a demonstration of the overwhelming power of God so that the world can see his iskis, his ability, his resource. Now, the fourth word in our passage for the word power is the uh, Greek word energia, where we get the word energy. But it's this idea of flow. It's this idea of at work. It's this idea of uh, uh, operative. Uh, it's like this, uh, it's, the, it's the energizing of something. And so if, if I can put this all together, it's like Paul saying, I need, I need to describe the power of God. How am I going to describe the power of God? The power of God is truly indescribable. In fact, it would be easier to describe the vastness of the ocean to someone who's only ever seen a droplet of water than it is to describe the immensity of the power of God. I mean, how do you begin to describe the power of God? And by the way, if the power of God is indescribable, how much more the God behind the power? 
But he says, but let me do my best. So in verse 19, he pulls out two rare Greek words. And he says his power is surpassing greatness. That there's this idea that it's, it's just, it's mega. It's just immense. It's just over the top. It's, it's hyperbole. But in this case, it's not hyperbole. That there's not enough language. There's not enough words. There, there's not enough emphasis to describe the overwhelming power of God. He says, in fact, let me take, let, let me go into the Greek language and pull out four different Greek words trying to give articulation to this idea of God's power. That God has sovereignty and dominion and authority. He has force, lordship. He, he oversees it. That, that he's the king of the universe. And therefore, he, he, as a king, has dominion and power. That, hey, you cannot bend, bend his arm behind his back. He's the one with ultimate control, authority, and power. Not only that, says Paul, but here's God. He has, oh, he has this iscus. He has this ability to perform. And he's going to take that ability to perform. And he's going to energize your life and create a demonstration of his power. Now, it's interesting to me. You ask Paul, uh, what is the limit to the dunamis of God? In other words, Paul, I've got this situation. Paul, I have this intense circumstance. Hey, Paul, I'm really confused in this area. Can God come through? Or maybe perhaps a better way of saying it, does God have enough, that dunamis demonstration for this situation I have. And Paul says, what are you talking about? Do you realize that the only limitation to the dunamis is the limitation of the iscus? In other words, here's Eric. He can bench press 800 pounds. You recognize he's only limited by that ability, the iscus. Can he bench press 500 pounds? Of course he can. Why? Because his iscus is limited at 800 pounds. Can he bench press 810 pounds? No. Because he does not have the iscus for it. Well, if God has unlimited iscus, you realize what that thereby means is that his dunamis is unlimited. Because the dunamis is only limited by the iscus, by the ability. So that means that there is no situation, no circumstance, no problem, no hardship, no finance, no family. There is nothing going on in your life that God cannot handle. Why? Because he has authority and dominion and sovereignty over all of it. But not only that, but he has unlimited iscus, this, oh, this ability, this power, so that he can energize and flow that into your situation and cause this demonstration, a revelation of his life and his power. And Paul says, I want you to get a clue on that. That his prayer is, hey, will you just gain an insight? Well, Paul, I'm never going to fully be able to understand that. His his power is indescribable. Paul says, I know, I know, I know. But I want you to get an insight. I want you to begin to see this. I, I want you to just begin to get, a, get an aha moment. So here's Paul, and he's praying. that here, Here's your heart. It's been enlightened. Hey, would you know the hope of his calling? Hey, would you know the riches of his inheritance? And you've got to understand his power. Now, I know, I know you're not going to fully understand it. But do you recognize that? If, as Paul prays, that you begin to get a grasp, an insight, you begin to see his power, that changes how you live. It changes how you think. It changes how you deal with circumstances. It, it changes how you deal with temptation. It, it changes how you deal with finances. It, it changes how you deal with people. It, this this uh, literally changes everything. Why? Because the moment I begin to understand that he has all authority and dominion and power and sovereignty, I can rest. 
that, hey, I could be thrown into prison and be falsely accused, and they could be beating me in just the squalors of a horrible prison and go, you know what? God has not abandoned me. That I can trust that he is, he is not that he caused this, but he, he's allowed this, and he's now going to orchestrate this for his purpose and his plan, and I will get out at the proper time. I can relax. That, hey, I don't have a financial situation. I do have a financial situation. Paul says, no, you don't. Because God oversees your financial situation. And God has overwhelming power to energize and flow in that circumstance and bring resolution. Well, why hasn't he done it yet? (laughs) Maybe you're not ready. Maybe he's trying to build something in your life. Maybe he's trying to press something in your life. Well, I've got family chaos. Good for you. Welcome to the club. But hey, you can relax in that. Why? Because God is powerful. Well, that person's never going to change. You don't know the power of your God then. Yeah, but but there's this circumstance pressing in around me. Hey, you don't understand the government stuff that we're dealing with. Hey, you you don't recognize the economy and where we're going. Have you seen the church and the darkness of the church nowadays? And hey, have you seen the... Yeah, yeah, I do. But what are we more focused on? Are we focused on the strength of the enemy? Which is nothing compared to the greatness of our God. Hey, there is no temptation that can overpower you when you begin to recognize that God's power wants to flow in your life and energize your life in such a way where your victory and your triumph, that in your circumstance and that, that trial and temptation becomes a revelation of his power in your life. See, this is not you looking and going, whoa, aren't I amazing? I, I conquered sin. See, none of us can say that. But hey, when the power of God begins to work in your life and your life begins to demonstrate his life, and your life begins to flow with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. When, when you start being able to walk forward in triumph and victory and you truly are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, you realize the world begins to look at you and go, hey, I don't, I don't understand how you are living. How, how is it that, that every other person is, is being onslaughted by this temptation and yet you, you have victory? Why, why is it that when, when there are no finances that you seem to be happier why is it when the economy seems to be tanking that you're, just, you're at peace? Why is it that when everything's going to hell in a handbasket, why is it that you're just, oh, I'm good? Well, because I know God's power. And he hasn't abandoned me. And yeah, he's allowing things in my life, but he's allowing things in my life to bring greater sanctification. And in fact, it's, it's causing pressure in my life, but it's causing pressure to press me toward him, that everything in life is crowding me toward him if you will. And Paul says, you've got to get a hold of this idea of his power. That you've got, to, you, you've got to see this as Paul. And I firmly believe that in our day and age, we, we do not understand his power. That something comes up in our life and we, we scream and we go in a fetal position and we run to our drugs and you know, we, we run to our counselors and we run to, and I'm not against that kind of stuff, but isn't it interesting that, wouldn't it be interesting if we truly had an insight on the power of God in our circumstance, our life, our trials, our temptations, our, our weaknesses, our whatever. Paul says, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. What? Why would you boast in your weaknesses? Because the power of God is seen. Paul says, do you know what you are? You are a cracked pot. Love that. You are a vessel. And in the Greek, it's not just you're a vessel, like you're just this pot. The word in the Greek, the emphasis is you're a cracked pot. That you have, you're this pot, you're this clay vessel, this earthen vessel, 
but there's this crack down the side of it. Well, what good is that? It doesn't even hold anything. Paul says, I know, isn't that awesome? So all that God dumps into your life, and in the context, he's talking about the very presence of God being dumped in your life, you realize that's just going to pour out of you. That the weaker you are, the bigger the crack, woo, rejoice! Why? Because the greater the power of God is seen in and, and through your life. So you, you begin to realize that, wow, what would happen if I begin to recognize that God is a God of impossibilities? God is a God of power. God is a God who has not abandoned me. God is, God is, hey, Job's situation, it was horrible. But do you recognize that God's still overseeing this whole thing? God has not abandoned Job. Hey, here's Paul chained in the bottom of the sewer-filled prison cell. And he can literally rejoice and sing songs. Why? Because he knows the power of his God. He knows his God. Now, Paul says, I understand that the power of God is indescribable, but you've got to begin to get an insight of the power of God for your life. And again, I can't manipulate him. I, I can't use his power for my benefit. This is not a, woo, I, I, this, is a, you know, this is a gun that I can somehow leverage and use for my benefit. There's none of that in this passage. What's in the passage is, Paul says, you just got to get an insight of who he is and trust that he's going to use your life in such a way that the power, the demonstration of him is going to be seen in and through your life. And I don't know about you, but our world desperately needs to see a demonstration of the power of God, which reveals him. This is not about you, but this is about him. We need that. We need that. Well, let's pray. Lord, we love you. I know we are desperate for a demonstration in our world today. Lord, I'm becoming convinced it's not, it's not that we need more teaching. We don't need more CDs or online courses or whatever it may be. We need you. And Lord, I know that each of us are, are dealing with family or finances or health or trials or circumstances, hardships, temptations, whatever it may be. Lord, could you somehow give us an insight? Would you give us a clue to the overwhelming power of our God? That you would just reveal yourself to us and allow us to see that you are the one with all the power. That the best the enemy has, it's just, it's nothing. It's just a drop in the bucket compared to the realities of who you are. That there is no strength and there is no might in the enemy. That you are the one who holds all power, all authority, all dominion that you have unlimited iscus, that your ability is unmatched, that there is no circumstance, there is no situation that you don't have the oomph to deal with. And Lord, I pray that our, our lives, our churches, that the body of Christ as a whole would be a demonstration, a kaboom, this demonstration in the, in the realities of how we, where we live of your ability that somehow our lives truly begin to be indescribable to the world around us. That, that when people look at how the church is functioning, how they look at how each of our individual lives are working, the only explanation is you. And so, Lord, would you take our lives, these earthen vessels that has a whole bunch of cracks. And Lord, we want to thank you for the cracks because the bigger the crack, the more you are seen. So, Lord, would you demonstrate your life in and through us? Lord, let the, let the world not see the earthen vessel. Let the world see that which is pouring from us. Lord, I pray that somehow your life, your, your, your ability, your oomph will be demonstrated and seen 
to this world once again, and the world would know that you are God. So Lord, we just entrust ourselves afresh into you, and and Lord, we want to take this concept, and we want to apply this into every aspect of our personal lives. And we want to see your power. And we understand, God, that we can't manipulate you. And it doesn't mean you're going to do what, we, what we're wanting or how we think it's going to be done. But, Lord, I pray that we would just rest and we would trust in your provision. That we would rest and trust that, that you have not abandoned us. That, that we could rest and trust in the fact that you are moving and that you are able to handle every circumstance, situation, trial, temptation that we'll ever face. Thank you that we have such a power working on our behalf. We love you, Jesus. We just give you the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.